I'm Riaz Atbutt. It's Tuesday the 2nd of March and this is Guardian Daily. Today, Conservative peer Lord Ashcroft comes clean about his tax status. He's a non-dom, but how damaging will it be for the Tories? Here is a man who's bankrolling the Conservative Party, masterminding their key seat strategy, I would say buying the election, and he doesn't pay taxes like the rest of us. Radovan Karadzic, the former Bosnian Serb leader, begins his defence at a war crimes trial in The Hague. We hear from one of the first journalists to witness the Bosnian concentration camps. When we went to the camps on that unforgettable, accursed day, August the 5th in 1992, we were passed from Karadzic himself seamlessly down the chain of command. Microsoft agrees a deal to help users choose how they access the internet. And Russia's Winter Olympians return home to demands for resignations after too many slip-ups on the ice in Vancouver. We hear from our man in Moscow. In Soviet times, in communist times, if you were a talented kid who excelled in one particular discipline, you were coached for free and you could go all the way to the top. Now, since the collapse of communism in the 90s, this infrastructure has has gone and unfortunately, sport has, has become something of a kind of pastime for Russia's elite. First today, Lord Ashcroft, the Conservative Party's deputy chairman, has confirmed for the first time that he is non-domiciled in the UK for tax reasons. That means he doesn't pay tax on his earnings abroad to the inland revenue. The revelation followed a long-running freedom of information request from Labour MP Gordon Prentice. Well, I'm hugely relieved that this dirty little secret that Michael Ashcroft has had for a decade is now out in the open because here is a man who's bankrolling the Conservative Party, masterminding their key seat strategy, I would say buying the election, and he doesn't pay taxes like the rest of us. And he sits over there legislating, making the laws of the land, and he doesn't pay taxes on the same basis that I pay taxes. Well, Nicholas Watt is on the line now from our office in Westminster. Nick, can you tell us the significance of this declaration from Lord Ashcroft? Well, the Conservatives hoped yesterday that when Lord Ashcroft put this statement out on his website that he was indeed a non-dom, that they would really be drawing a line under 10 years, a decade of speculation about his tax status. Uh, We shouldn't forget that it's not that long ago that his spokesman said that hell would freeze over before Lord Ashcroft would go into detail uh, about uh, his his tax affairs. Uh, But there has been this proposal to change the law that will mean that all parliamentarians will have to be treated as full UK taxpayers. Uh, That meant that every day the Conservatives were getting questions uh, about Lord Ashcroft, but more significantly yesterday, uh, the Cabinet Office was responding to a Freedom of Information request about the undertakings that Lord Ashcroft gave when he finally made it to the House of Lords in 2000. So they hope this will draw a line under the affair, but obviously many papers, including The Guardian, are uh, spending a great deal of time covering it. Quite right too. How big of an asset is he for the Tories and how much damage is this going to do to Cameron's efforts to detox the party? Well, uh, Lord Ashcroft is both uh, an asset and a liability. Uh, He is a liability for the obvious reasons uh, that it doesn't take rocket science to work out that when you have somebody who has a vast fortune overseas and that fortune channeled perfectly legally through UK companies to fund the Tory party and their campaign in marginal seats, it doesn't take a huge genius to work out that that doesn't look particularly good. So on that side of the equation, he is a liability. But in other areas, crucial 
crucial areas he is an asset he is an asset because he's helped fund their polling he is an asset because he helped fund their campaign in marginal constituencies and what Tory say is that he does it in a completely non-ideological way there are some Tory donors like Lord Carms the former Tory donor Stuart Wheeler who have agendas they have Eurosceptic agendas Tories say Michael Oscroft has no political agenda other than that he wants the Conservative Party to return and to campaign on the centre ground and it's interesting that uh, in the run-up to the 2005 general election he didn't rate Ian Duncan Smith he didn't rate Michael Had, so he ran his own parallel campaign outside Conservative HQ he was brought in after the 2005 election and did something that Tories say was absolutely crucial after their very very heavy defeat in 2005 he commissioned detailed polling as to why they had lost and then he wrote a report and the report was called smell the coffee and what it said is guys we've just lost three elections there's something deeply wrong with us our brand is tarnished there's only one place we should be and that's the center ground and so the Tories say for that reason they regard him as an asset but there are very senior Tories who still believe that the liabilities outweigh the assets and one of those is Michael Gove the shadow school secretary who interestingly yesterday was leading the shadow cabinet defence of Lord Ashcroft but uh, it's interesting that uh, Michael Gove was a senior executive on the Times a decade ago when that paper had a furious run-in with Lord Ashcroft. Turn to page 145 of Lord Ashcroft's biography and you will see an absolutely devastating attack on Gove saying that on the Today programme he put in a lamentable performance talking about Michael Ashcroft. Now, Lord Ashcroft has cited Lord Paul as a Labour peer who has similar tax arrangements. Do you think that's going to get the heat off him in any way? I think that uh, Labour may well ask questions about how they responded to Lord Ashcroft's announcement yesterday because they had a string of senior cabinet ministers, Jack Straw, Alan Johnson, taking to the airwaves uh, saying uh, how dreadful Lord Ashcroft was. But of course, they then face questions about, well, uh, how different is it when you have Lord Paul, who is a non-dom and who is a major uh, donor to the Labour Party? So that meant that they faced uh, tough questions when they thought that they would be allowed to crow on uh, the uh, the television airwaves um, but I think it is difficult to make an exact parallel between Lord Ashcroft and Lord Paul because of course yes Lord Paul like Lord Ashcroft is a non-dom but Lord Paul is not deputy chairman of the Conservative Party Lord Paul sorry of the Labour Party Lord Paul does not have a seat in Labour campaign HQ Lord Paul is not running the Labour campaign in the marginals he's a donor he's not somebody actually helping to run the show Nicholas Watt there, and you can read more about this story and follow all the build-up to the general election at guardian.co.uk forward slash politics. Hello, I'm Tom Clark and presenter of Politics Weekly. My co-presenter Allegra Stratton and I are taking our show on the road in the run-up to the election. First stop will be Manchester with our top columnists Polly Toynbee, Michael White and John Harris. Come along and hear the programme being recorded and pitch questions to them yourselves. Tickets are £5 and to reserve places, email us at politics.weekly at guardian.co.uk. The hosts parted long into the night in Vancouver as Canada's Olympic ice hockey team defeated their arch rivals, the United States, to claim another gold medal. But in the Russian camp, the recriminations were just beginning. The Russians, once a dominant force in winter sports, touched down in Moscow today amid calls from their president for high-level resignations following a disastrous medal haul. Luke Harding is in Moscow. 
There's much gnashing of teeth here in Russia and really an enormous post-mortem into what went wrong. What, what you have to bear in mind is, is Russia and, and traditionally, of course, the Soviet Union always does very, very well in the Winter Olympics. Normally in the first place, certainly in the top three, this time Russia has finished um, 11th. And already um, Russia's president, Dmitry Medvedev, who, who was um, supposed to, to fly to Vancouver for, for the closing ceremony, but in the end decided to boycott it in disgust. He, he's called for the, the um, heads of Russia's Olympic committees to, to tender their resignations. Um, and he sort of says, if they don't do this, he will find ways of helping them. <laughs> that sounds like an offer they can't refuse. What exactly do you think he has in mind? Well, uh, I, I think, obviously, getting rid of the officials responsible, firing them is, is, is always a kind of easy gesture. But I, I think the problem with Russian sport is more profound than that. In Soviet times, two, three decades ago, Russia had a, had a whole host of world-class athletes. And, and the reason that was the case was because um, sport was very much a kind of mass participation activity back then. There was a system of national coaches and of regional excellence. And basically, in, in Soviet times, in communist times, if you were a talented kid who excelled in one particular discipline, you were coached for free, and you could go all the way to the top. Now, since the collapse of communism in the 90s, this infrastructure is has gone. And unfortunately, sport has, has become something of a kind of pastime for Russia's elite. And, and for a while, the, the train, if you like, kind of carried on running. But r- really, at Vancouver, it, it's crashed. And, and the other thing, of course, is this is a terrible blow for Vladimir Putin, uh, Russia's prime minister, who's very much associated with sport. He, he himself is a black belt in judo and a sports nut. And, and Russia is hosting the next Winter Olympics in Sochi in four years' time. This doesn't bode well, then. You have Vladimir Putin, who gets his shirt off at every opportunity and wrestles bears with his bare hands. And you have the team returning to outrage and disgust. But is that sense of outrage shared by the public, or is this just happening in the government? No, it's everywhere. I, I, I actually um, drove back from uh, the, the airport in Moscow last night, and I was talking to my taxi driver. He was also lamenting what had happened and kind of shaking his head. All the talk shows here are discussing this failure and asking who's to blame, whether it's the sportsmen themselves, whether it's the coaches. Very interestingly, the um, head of uh, Russia's um, kind of uh, public accounting chamber has also kind of stood up and says that he's going to be investigating what happened to to the millions of rubles that were pumped into Russia's Olympic campaign uh, amid the suspicion that much of it was actually nicked, stolen. Uh, There's an interesting story in the Moscow Times as well, for example, that the the head of um, Russia's Luge Federation has explained that... um, uh, he wasn't given any money before the Olympics and he had to, when his luge broke, he had to repair it out of his own pocket. Luke Harding there in Moscow. The Bosnian war was just and holy, according to the former Bosnian Serb leader Radovan Karadzic, who yesterday opened his defence to war crimes trial in The Hague. Karadzic is accused of the biggest mass murder in Europe since the Second World War. He's decided to represent himself and denies two counts of genocide and nine other counts of murder, extermination, persecution, forced deportation and the seizing of 200 United Nations hostages. In 1992, the observer's Ed Vallemi revealed the existence of the Bosnian concentration camps and he's on the line now. Ed, first of all, how does it feel after witnessing firsthand the aftermath of that war to see Karadzic on trial now? Um, well, it's, it's, uh, we, we met during the war. He has a horrible sort of 
kind of fish limpy handshake for such a bear of a man and it it, well, it it was sort of a simultaneously gratifying and not when he was arrested and then finally came into the court where he belongs gratifying because there he was uh, finally on trial for this as you said the worst carnage in Europe since the third reich and um, and yet frustrating because it had been 13 uh, or 14 you know, very long years since the indictment that he had been allowed to slip the net, that, uh, that, the, that the powers had uh, allowed him to slip the net. And so, in a way, the whole thing becomes part of this uh, grotesque sort of um, apathy, d- didactic apathy by the international community over Bosnia. It was the international community that you know, betrayed these, these, these poor Bosniak Muslims and Croats uh, to, the, to the wolves. And, um, but now he's there, <clears throat> he's on trial, and he's opened his defence with, uh, this, with this craziness. I mean, I was going to ask you, what do you make of his opening statements and the claim that the camps that you saw yourself were collection centres for refugees? Well, <clears throat> there are two sort of opposite reactions, really. I mean, one is, you know, this, this argument, and uh, I can explain why. I mean, it's old, it's tired, and it's failed. Um, it's been used by a number of convicted war criminals before, uh, notably by the president of the local so-called crisis committee, um, which ran the camps, Milomir Stakic, who went down for life. It's been used by others. They've all been convicted. So, you know, it's, it's, th- th- this gun has been fired before, and it's firing blanks. Uh, and yet, you know, this, I suppose, does have the benefit of coming from the top. It's interesting that it does come from the top, because <clears throat> when we went to the camps on that unforgettable, accursed day, August the 5th in 1992, we were passed from Karadzic himself seamlessly down the chain of command. Uh, physically, we were passed from him to his deputy, from his deputy to the head of the crisis committee, from the crisis committee to the commander of the camp. I mean, the chain of command, there is no doubt. I mean, it was, a, it was literally a physical journey from him, you know, to, to the place. And, you know, this is the other reaction because the place itself holding center, you know, it's grotesque, this. A holding center that, um, next to which uh, recently 373 remains of 373 people were found in a mass grave. You know, these places uh, were hellish. I mean, the main point in this really is not, for me, the, the trials, although I think they're very important, and it certainly isn't whatever agenda these people who you know, call us fabricators of the camps have. What really matters are the survivors and the bereaved. Um, I've kept up with them since 1992. Some of them are personal friends. And what none of these people who, who wax on about this image on ITN or this story in The Guardian by me don't seem to be able to consider for one moment is the searing impact of what they do on the survivors and the, and the bereaved, the appalling pain they cause. It's one thing to have to go through these horrors. It's quite another to be told that they didn't happen. It's grotesque. Ed, follow me there, and you can follow the trial at guardian.co.uk forward slash world. From now on, Windows users in Europe will be offered a selection of browsers when they log in and try to go online. It's part of a deal between Microsoft and the European Commission which ruled that pre-installing Internet Explorer on every new computer was anti-competitive. The development gives directions on how to find and install browsers offered by competitors such as Mozilla's Firefox, Opera and Google Chrome. The Guardian's technology editor, Charles Arthur, explains the origins of the dispute. 
About 10 years ago, Opera, which is a Norwegian company that makes its own web browser, complained to the European Commission about Microsoft and the fact that Microsoft includes Internet Explorer, its own browser, bundled into Windows, that if you buy Windows, then you find Internet Explorer is already there, already set up. And they complained that this was anti-competitive. It's taken an enormously long time for the European Commission to grind this out, but uh, it's finally uh, determined. It, it had determined that it didn't like this that it was anti-competitive, mm. that it didn't create an open market for browsers. Uh, Nelly Crows, who's the, commission's, uh, the competition commissioner, said it was rather like going to a supermarket and finding there was only one brand of shampoo to, to buy. They've now got a decision which allows people who are using Windows, XP, uh, Vista, or Windows 7 uh, will be presented with what's called a ballot screen, which will show about a dozen different browsers that people can download and use instead of Internet Explorer. So it's a real David versus Goliath moment here with the little guys winning their battle. But what difference will it make to consumers? Well, for consumers, uh, it should mean that uh, people will be using a different browser. And there are definitely benefits to that. A big problem in the uh, early part of the 2000s was that um, Internet Explorer was the most dominant browser. And because there wasn't any real competition from other browsers, development on the web pretty much died. Uh, Internet Explorer just sat on it and, and killed it. And it was only really with the launch of Firefox, which is a free alternative browser, that uh, things really started hotting up. People started developing things for it, things that really changed. You got things like Google Maps and so on. And that's made a big difference. So for consumers, they'll start to see more choice, which actually means you're more secure because a lot of the uh, sort of scams, a lot of the uh, what are called drive-by downloads, which are security exploits against browsers, a lot of those are targeted at Internet Explorer. So you see more security, you'll get more choice. And actually, it should mean that the web becomes something which is much more standards-based. But it all goes back to Microsoft in the end. I mean, how damaging is this for them? Or will this not really make a dent? It's not damaging in the sense that it's not taking money away from them directly. But it takes some of their control of what they were able to make people go to and where they were able to make people look at. Uh, it takes some of that away from them. And it means that they can't rely, at least in Europe, on um, being able to drive things on the web in the way that they want to simply by what they include in Internet Explorer. They now have to think rather differently about what it is that the web does and how they interact with the web, certainly in Europe. Charles Arthur there. Well, that's all for today. My name is Briazat Butt and Cardia Daily was produced by Phil Maynard. Goodbye. Goodbye.